Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new installment of the AJ Bruno Show. We're back with another guest um, talking about new subjects, new exciting things, hopefully. Uh, we're planning on having some new store shows in store for you soon, so be sure to tune in for those. But uh, right now, my guest today is Stephanie Shuttler. She is a uh, wildlife biologist who has appeared on Science Channel's What on Earth? And uh, we'll be talking about all sorts of wildlife um, and biology-related things today. So without further ado, let's uh, get her on the show. Hello, Stephanie. Hi, how are you? All right, how are you? Very good. Thanks for having me on. Great. Sure, no, it's good to have you. Uh, let's uh, dive right into it. Well, first, um, how did you first get interested in becoming a, a wildlife biologist and ecologist, and uh, what is it like for anyone who may not be quite clear on the details? I got interested in it in a very roundabout way. I never knew I wanted to become a wildlife biologist. I actually never really knew you could become one. The only scientist I knew growing up was Jane Goodall, and um, I really respected her and, and admired her, but I grew up in a family. Um, we actually would camp by staying in hotel rooms overnight. So if you don't know Jane Goodall's background, she studied chimpanzees in, in Tanzania, and I just didn't think I would have it in me to go to remote Tanzania and live. She lived virtually among the chimps with no other people. And so I just never knew how you would get into a career like that. So um, I went to college, and I had two majors. I majored in theater and biology. And the plan was to become an actress. And <laughs> during college, my brother recommended that I do study abroad. And um, I had always loved animals. I grew up in a family that um, that taught me about animals. Like, I remember we would, um, you know, go to ponds and catch frogs and snakes. So I always really loved animals. And when I was deciding on a study abroad program, this was before, uh, this was on the verge of the internet. So before the internet really blew up big. So I was collecting brochures. And all the theater programs were in Europe. And I found this one brochure on Kenya, and um, because I'd always loved animals, it just seemed like such a cool opportunity. And um, also, I just never thought I would be able to go to Africa. I figured I could always go to Europe um, when I was older, but Africa just seemed like such a, um, an adventure and just so far out of reach. So I decided to do that trip, and it ended up changing my life uh, because it was a program for wildlife management, and I already had the, um, the degree in biology, so I didn't have to change that much. My degree in biology was actually to become a, a medical doctor if, if acting didn't work out. That was my backup plan. And um, so, yeah, so I easily switched, and when I was over there in Kenya, I learned about all sorts of jobs in, in wildlife biology. So, um, you know, you can work for the government, either the, the federal government or the state government. You can work for nonprofits. Um, you can be, most people go into it wanting to become a professor at universities. Um, but there's a lot of opportunities. And now I actually did get to do some research in Africa still. Um, but 
I live in the United States, so I'm kind of, I'm not as extreme as Jane Goodall. I still have my, my connections here in the U.S. And for somebody who wants to get into it, um, it's a lot easier to figure out that path nowadays. And when I uh, was in college, um, maybe my university wasn't the best for wildlife biology. So maybe I just, um, maybe just by chance it wasn't that great of a program, but now Definitely, there are programs um, that are amazing for wildlife biology. So even here, I'm in Raleigh, and we're close with um, North Carolina State University, and they have programs in zoology, fisheries and wildlife. Um, they even have, like, captive animal um, management minors. Um, so just really specified careers uh, or, or um, programs. So for college, I would recommend doing that. And then for most professions, for for, for wildlife biology, you need a master's or a PhD. And when it comes to that, um, you want to pick your program basically based on your professor and what types of research that they do. So um, I would think about it backwards and think about what job you ultimately want and then try to get the experiences along the way. Mm. Now, you, you specialize in, in elephants. So what was it about them that appealed to you and made you get into that sort of research? I, so when I was in Kenya, that's when I first became in love with elephants. And um, what really did it for me is that we had met with a researcher, um, she, or a researcher from a program um, led by Cynthia Moss, and she's kind of like the Jane Goodall of elephants. She has lived in um, Ambicelli National Park for, I think, close to 40 years now, but at least over 30 years. And she's study the elephants. So, you know, going out every single day, she learned to recognize the individuals by the tears on their ears. And um, she followed them and, and tracked them and, and learned about their lives. And we met with one of the researchers and they just have such an incredibly rich and interesting social behavior. They are uh, one of the most intelligent animals on the planet, um, so up there with primates and dolphins. And um, they do things that you rarely see in the other species, and some of them, some of their behaviors cannot be well explained by science. Um, so there's this one story that particularly stuck with me of um, – so elephants, they will come across the bones of other elephants and stop and investigate them. And um, that's where, like, that's part of the myth of where, like, elephant graveyards came from. And um, some people say they have, like, elephant funerals. Um, but this one researcher who had tracked elephants, so he had put um, GPS collars on them, so he, can, he knew where the elephants were. And um, one of the elephants in that group ha was dying. Um, so they were watching them, and the, the elephant was collapsing, and the other elephants would help raise her up. But eventually she passed away. And because they had other elephants collared in that region, they watched the other elephants come and visit that elephant. So for some for some elephants, if they're related to each other, that makes sense by, by science because 
there's um, a theory called kin selection. So you're going to want to help out your kin because they share the same genes as you do. So if your family does well and they pass on their genes, it's, it's kind of the same as you doing well and, and passing on your genes. But some of these elephants that came to visit the carcass weren't related to the, this elephant at all because they had all the genetic work done. So, um, and some of them went purposely out of their way just to visit this elephant. So, again, it's something that science really can't explain. And they're very altruistic, which means they, they help each other out um, during times of distress. So I just think they have a lot of really interesting um, behaviors that you rarely see in in the in other species. And I chose my work because I um, was working for my advisor, Dr. Lori Eggert, and she um, was a geneticist. So my research had to involve genetics on it. And I found out about forest elephants. And at the time, we didn't know this. Um, there was some evidence that they were a different species, but it wasn't confirmed yet. Um, but they are now confirmed to be a separate species. And these elephants are um, poached really heavily, and they live in the forest, so it's really difficult to see them. So there's so little information known about this species. So I decided that I wanted to find out more about it. And it's pretty remarkable considering elephants are the largest land animal. And here, they're the smallest of the elephants, but um, it's still one of the largest animals, and we don't know that much about them. Sure. I've heard that about the forest elephants being poached at a much higher rate than, than the bush elephants, but I would think it would be the opposite because wouldn't it be harder to find them in the jungle, or is it because um, it's harder to, to watch and enforce against poaching? Why such a discrepancy? Yeah, it's the latter because it's so hard to monitor. So um, it might be harder to find them, but um, maybe now the poaching has changed so much, or the poaching has changed in East and Southern Africa that, that poachers do have really sophisticated equipment and, and can use things like planes. But if you're thinking about on the ground, it's probably it's probably not that different, although I guess you can see farther in the savannas. But it's more that it's just easier to poach because it is so hard to monitor these forests. So in the savannas, you can have planes and fly over. You can, I mean, you can see poachers, poacher camps from these planes. You can count elephants. So um, that's how they have good elephant um, census data. But for forest elephants, it is extremely hard to count them. So for one, we don't know how many are there to begin with, and you have to rely on methods that come from extrapolating data from dung, and even just navigating the forest is incredibly difficult. So you end up doing these surveys, um, and dung is elephant poop, you end up doing these surveys, um, counting dung and extrapolating it for a gigantic area. So there's a lot of error in terms of how many elephants there are, and then, again, all the poaching happens in secret. So you can't fly over and spot poachers or poaching camps um, because it's all covered by canopy. And even in areas where there's logging and mining, when you fly over, you, it, there's so much tree canopy that you still can't see those activities. And some of those activities are actually making it worse for elephants. Um, so when it's not 
there there are some good forestry companies that have really strict um, regulations that don't allow hunting, but there's other companies that don't. And once you build a road into the forest, it's really easy for people to have higher access to the animals, and um, that that influences poaching a lot. So yeah, it's just these these poach these parks are huge. I mean, also corruption is a big factor in it, too. So a lot of these parks, um, we call them paper parks, where they're designated to be protected areas, but um, they're not necessarily well enforced, or there's not a lot of funding to enforce rangers to help patrol to um, protect the animals. And then, again, there's corruption. So sometimes um, the poaching ends up being tied to government officials. Sure, and I think the problem would only get worse, though, with, uh, with sub-Saharan Africa, particularly because that region is such a high population growth in particular, so I would think that would destroy more habitat, and I don't know you know, what the workaround would be for something like that. Yeah, so for in West Africa, um, elephants are really threatened because they don't have much habitat at all um, because of the high population growth. In Central Africa, that habitat is not the problem. And even, or at least in Gabon, it's not a big problem um, where I studied. And um, Gabon has a really low human population density and um, few cities. So there's actually a lot of canopy cover. And even when you look at the maps of all the forestry concessions and mining going on, it looks like the land is being torn up. But again, when you fly over, it's all continuous habitat. And those, those activities actually don't bother the elephants much. Um, because actually, like with the forestry, they can, like, they can be attracted to um, this disturbed areas uh, because different types of plants go in those disturbed areas. Um, so, so it's not that that bothers them. It's the, it's the poaching. So for Gabon, the big problem is you have a lot of people that live in Libreville, the capital city, and what they'll do is they'll poach in the forest. Um, and this is true for all the animals. Um, Gabon's really big on bush meat, so it's just any wild animal meat. And it's um, preferred there compared to domestic animals, and it's also um, cheaper. So they'll hunt and then send it on the train to the capital city. So that's where it becomes unsustainable. And for elephants, it's really unsustainable because they're extremely long-lived. They're, they're like humans. They live to be, um, when they're not poached, I think the highest is probably 70. And they have, um, they're young. They take a long time to raise their young. So they're pregnant for two years. And then the calf nurses on the mom for another two years. So a female elephant can only become receptive every four years. And then it takes them, they can become sexually mature at like 10, but that's really young. Usually it's a, it's a little bit later, like um, 13 and up. So, yeah, so if they're poached a lot, it's just hard for them to recover as well. Sure. No, and I know the forest elephants take longer to, to breed too, which is part of the problem. But um, when there's not large forest cover, I would think, would it be possible to enforce this by drones because you can see everything? Is that not being done effectively, or, or can that be implemented? What do you think about that? Yeah, um, that's definitely something p 
people are working on. I'm not as familiar with how that research is progressing, but um, in the savannas, there's probably less of a need for it because those areas are pretty well patrolled by plane and, and by researchers too. So um, my experience is mostly in Kenya and a lot of their parks are really heavily monitored. Um, and whether that's by, again, tourism, so you have uh, regulated tour operators going in there. So if there was tourists and they see something, they're definitely going to report it. And that's their source of income to have wildlife. Um, so I don't think there's as much of a need for drones there for poaching, although they would be more effective there. Um, but I do know that people are definitely interested in making it for forest elephants. And um, actually in our lab, um, we're we're playing around with drones, not with not with elephants, but with other animals, and um, potentially using like thermal imaging on the drones to be able to count animals through the trees. Hmm. But Back also the, getting them to sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Getting the drones to a challenge is is charging and expense because these these forests are really huge areas so getting them to be effective over large areas of land and um you might be able to do that but that's probably a really expensive drone and a lot of these areas um you know it's just the basics you might not even have electricity in some of these areas so there's a lot of technical challenges around that sure i could see how that would uh that would be a problem um uh, you mentioned counting them, and on that issue, there was something I've been curious about for a while. Why is it that African elephants in general, uh, the populations historically have been so much larger than Asian elephants? I mean, they have a lot of habitat there, too. Is there any reason for that you know in particular? Or? Um, I think I – think, I'm not sure. I've actually never been asked that question before. Um I guess just because they have, I think just they have so much more land. I think their range traditionally expands much larger across Africa than in Asia. That's what I would imagine. Sure. Well, uh, before we pivot to another subject, do you have one story about stunning elephants um, or any any other animal in the field that really stands out as unique? Yes, I, I have a lot of <laughs> um, but probably my, my favorite one and probably the most interesting one is that the park I worked in in Gabon is um, famous or infamous for having aggressive elephants. Um, so they, they just charge a lot. And I've been, when I, when I was uh, choosing the park to work in, with my advisor, we had been to different parks trying to choose them. And like one park we went to, you could just walk very fast through the forest. It was like, you know, walking in a forest here in North Carolina. You don't even think about it. And in Lope, where I worked, you, and the reason why I chose it is because it did have some savanna habitats. So it's deep within forest elephant range, but it had a couple of savanna habitats that were maintained by humans. And you could see the elephants there. So that's why I chose it. But we had to do some some research where we went into the forest, and anytime you walked into the forest, you'd have to stand outside the forest for a good thirty seconds to a minute and listen. And just the whole time, you worked very slow because you were extremely cautious about elephants being around you. 
Um, and my my best story is the one night um, we lived in a field station in the middle of a national park, and at night we would turn off the generator. And um, most of the elephants were still really skittish of humans. There were, even though the research station has been there for a long time, there were only a couple of elephants that seemed to be habituated to humans. But once the generator was off, they, a lot of them would come out at night. So it was really cool because on moonlit nights, um, you, could, you could stand. We stayed in like cabins, and you could look through the screen. And an elephant might just be like a couple of meters in front of you. So it was really quite amazing. Um, but the one night we had um, elephants that just, they were behaving very differently. Like you could just tell immediately. So normally they come and there's these fruiting trees around the station. So they eat the fruits and they have a hard outer shell. So they make a big crunching sound. And um, just the one night, they just were, like, more um, riled up, and you could hear them, like, ripping the trees and ripping branches down. And it was actually really hard to sleep because they just, like, came into our camp and just went around the camp for, I'd say, like, two hours and just, like, were breaking different things. Like, you could hear them going into the kitchen, and you could hear glass breaking, and um, they knocked over trash cans, which is that's not that abnormal because they might be trying to get food. And then our complex had a bathroom at the end, and you could hear them circling around the complex. And they eventually stuck their trunks in the bathroom and started, like, pulling on pipes. And I could even hear them outside my room, and you could, like, feel or you could hear their trunk like hitting the outside of the wall so so they were like feeling the outside of the wall so they're starting to get in closer and closer and I my bed was right next to the window so they were actually like so close that I got out of my bed and I went to the other side of the room and they actually started to stick their trunks inside the room so at that point I didn't I was really scared I didn't know what to do and um, I I was talking to my my coworkers through the wall because we were all connected into one building, and I said they're coming in. I don't know what to do, and so finally um, I decided to go in the other researchers' room, which meant stepping outside of my room. And um, so I listened for the elephants, and I didn't hear them. So I ran outside really quick, and I went into his room. And we decided to um, light a candle because we couldn't couldn't find a flashlight for some reason. So we lit a candle, and they did not like that. They let out um, what's called a rumble, and it sounds like a a low growl. And there's different kinds of rumbles. So rumbles don't necessarily mean anything bad, but it just didn't seem like they liked that. So then... We blew out the candle, but we were talking about, like, what should we do? Like, should we bang pots or anything? But we didn't have anything in our room. And after we blew out the candle, though, um, they left. I don't know why. I don't know why the candle did anything. Or just maybe they heard us talking and they saw the light. But um, they left after that. But that, that was definitely the scariest moment of my life. And... Um, I told I was actually like very scared to work there for the next couple of months 
And I told this researcher uh, who had worked on elephants there for a long time, and I thought he was going to make fun of me for being so scared, but he said, no, he said there's two reactions to the elephants in Lope, that you either are like a thrill seeker and you get addicted to them charging you and like it's like a, an adrenaline <laughs> rush, or you are just like really scared and never want to come back. <laughs> I did end up coming back, and I didn't have any other... I did get charged once, um, but that was the scariest. And oh, I don't know why um, they did it. There is there is no food in my room. Um, I I just don't. I have no idea why. It's a, and that was the first time that happened in 25 years in the field station. Well, maybe they're being friendly. Who knows? <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> and what I suspect was happening is that there was a male elephant in must, which is their um, sexual state, so it's kind of like deer mm-hmm. rut, and the males can really misbehave during that time. Um, and I imagine there were some females, and he was, I don't know, chasing them all night. But they were, yeah, they just were not happy that night. <laughs> That's funny. Um, all right, well, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, One on Earth. Some people might have seen you on the Science Channel show this past season. Uh, what was the experience being interviewed for that like, and are there any particular issues they asked you about that you found the, the most intriguing? Um, it's, it's a really interesting, fun process. So they, you'll get stories and um, you'll, so you'll get the images and the stories ahead of time, um, like a little bit of background information about it. And, um, but basically they're filming your reactions um, to the whole thing and how you, um, might perceive those images to be. And um, if it's a subject area where you know more about it, then you can add more um, detailed personal information about it. So, for example, when I was talking about um, the, the mammoth, um, that was a possible theory because you go through all these different theories and debunk it. And one of them, so the one site was. Um, a mammoth lab to bring back the woolly mammoth, which scientists are actually working on. Um, they're they're trying to get the DNA of, um, or we have DNA of woolly mammoths, but we're trying to clone it. Or not we, scientists are trying to clone it. I'm not working on this project. You're doing scientists it scientists are working on this project. Um, to clone the woolly mammoth and bring it back to life. Um, so I would elaborate more about, um, you know, about, how it's probably it, probably not uh, in this case. It probably wasn't um, a woolly mammoth lab because of the location, and and we sort of go by our scientific reasons of why we think that that's not true based on what we know about the type of research involved for for doing such a project like that. And um, no, it's fun. It's interesting. It's it's a lot more intense than I thought it would be. Um, but yeah, you basically like sit there for four or five hours and and go over your actions on on different photos and add your your scientific input on the possibilities of of something. So, or another example was um, with Bigfoot. So they had um, this episode where there were tracks and some of the people um, thought they could be Bigfoot tracks and there had been a lot of Bigfoot sightings in that area but um you know of course we immediately don't think that there's bigfoot in that area at all 
And uh, just based on, I work on camera traps now, so just based on all the camera trap footage that happens all over the world, it just would be so hard to believe that something like that lives out there and we have no evidence of it. So just adding more of your um, personal experiences to the story to, to, en- to enhance it a little bit and help further debunk it. Sure, no, and uh, Bigfoot might be too smart to get caught on camera, so there's always that possibility. <laughs> yeah, although there there has been papers on people finding hair and claiming that it's hair from um, the Yeti, and it turn, it always turns out to be like wolf or bear hair, so that's another debunking, too. <laughs> no. But I'm actually always well, surprised that they do the genetic analysis to, to figure that out, but they do. No, I've heard about that too. And, I mean, I like to keep an open mind with it, but unless they have some sort of actual evidence, it's hard to accept something like that. Um, so, in uh, in conservation in general, is there a particular species which you uh, are particularly optimistic about, and one that you think there's little to no hope for? Um, particularly optimistic about. Um, I mean, honestly, I am optimistic about most species, to tell you the truth, or most species that most people think about with conservation. Um, So we tend to think about the large charismatic species. So I am still optimistic about elephants um, or tigers. Like those are the species that, like I said, most people think of, but there are tons of species that don't get any recognition. And, um, like even like a person like me doesn't know about. So there's, you know, like species of mussels or plants or insects that are really hard to advocate for because, um, they're not cute and fuzzy or they might be cute in our minds, but they're not to, um, (laughs) other people's minds. So, um, I mean, there's definitely, and I think that's part of conservation too, that we just have to realize we can't save all species, that it's, it's an incredibly large uphill battle. So there, there are species that we are going to lose um, just because there's just not enough funding to go around for all of them. Of the high-profile species that I'm probably the least optimistic about is a dolphin um, called the, the vaquita in um, west coast oh, of yeah, Mexico. And um, the reason why I'm not optimistic is because there's so few individuals left. There's only like 30 individuals left. And it's just so hard for me to imagine that, like, like it's a totally charismatic animal, like a cute little mini dolphin. And... There's just not, it just doesn't seem to be a way out. Like they tried to, um, they tried to capture it recently for um, reintroduction purposes. So to, to breed in captivity and then re-release new individuals in the wild. But the ones that they did capture, um, they ended up aborting the mission because one died. So it's like if you have a population of just over 30 and one dies, that's a huge number mm-hmm. to lose. Um, so I just don't see what kind of interventions can happen that can allow them to rebound because that was like a last ditch effort and 
it failed. Um, so I think that I think they will be incredibly, incredibly challenging to make recover. But like I said, other species I'm I'm really optimistic for, and um, there's some species that have done incredibly well, like the American alligator um, used to be endangered, and they're not endangered anymore. Um, so they're a conservation success story. I do think that a lot of conservation now will have to rely on humans a lot more. So I brought up tigers. And um, a lot of the efforts, I think, will have to be emphasized not necessarily on the species, but on the human-wildlife conflict. So with tigers, the problem is not really growing the population. In India, they're able to get the tigers to rebound and grow, but they have nowhere to go. So getting them to disperse into um, community lands and live there with people is problematic. And even just to move between the community lands um, for between national parks is is challenging as well because I mean tigers are scary they can kill people um, so so I think a lot I think it's, I think there's a lot of promising things going on but there's still a lot of challenges and I think especially with humans. Hmm. Well, India is one of the countries that probably has a a better track record than others, but at the same time that being the only place where there's still Asiatic lions. And I know they wanted to split them up between two different parks and they're like, there's some resistance against doing that. So that's something which I find concerning since it's the only place where they even exist now. Yeah. I think India for the most part um, does a pretty good job at conservation. They seem to have a lot of national pride in their wildlife. Um, and I mean, they have a real challenge there being the second most populated country on earth. It's, it's definitely, I mean, that's definitely hard to balance, but um, they, send, they seem to have a real um, sense of pride for their conservation efforts. Mm-hmm. Well, in the, uh, in the U.S. in particular, it feels like we nowadays do a better job preserving species, uh, more so in the West. I feel like, I don't know if it's either too late here or just enough, not enough wasn't done, but, um, you know, why is it that we've had such a depopulation of, Cougars, wolves, uh, even bison were in the east. Species uh, are basically only um, farther west. So, uh, do you think there's any chance of reintroducing those or any others, or is that ship pretty much sailed? That's a good question. And actually, one of my scientist friends had posted that recently. Um, so, the the apex predators in the east have been extinct for a long time. Um, so we no longer have mountain lions. We no longer have um, wolves, with the exception of red wolves in North Carolina, but they're really small population, really restricted area. And also Florida panthers, I should say. Um, Florida panthers in Florida, really restricted area. Um, and pa- just to clarify, pumas, panthers, mountain lions, Cougars are all the same animal. So they've been extinct for a long time because they were purposely um, eradicated from this area. But I don't think that um, the East is doomed for wildlife. Um, So actually we do a lot of camera trapping in um, North Carolina and especially Raleigh. And we also have some larger studies that have taken place across the um, Eastern United States. And what we're finding is that in the um, developed areas, in the human 
um, developed landscapes that we still find a lot of wildlife. And some of the wildlife has been adapted to humans for a long time. So raccoons and opossums, um, deer. But like what I'm finding, I, I actually work with schools a lot. So I work alongside teachers to create lesson plans based on the real research that I do with camera trapping. And then the kids um, run the camera traps on their school grounds and um, collect data for, for us to use in real science. So I've been doing this around the world with four countries, and most of the data comes from, um, or, the, or the school with the most sites and um, camera trap locations are in North Carolina. And so just to get a sense of how schools compared to protected areas, I compared the camera trap data from, um, from the school data to the protected areas, and the schools actually had more species and higher detection rates of the animals. Um, so either that means that the animals are doing well in these human-developed landscapes or protected areas in the east are, are not as great. Um, but I think, like I talk to a lot of people when I'm setting up camera traps and they, they see a lot of wildlife and they think that the wildlife has nowhere to go. And I don't think it, that's as true as much as wildlife has become accustomed to living next to people. And in some cases, it's even attractive to live next to people. So people feed wildlife either purposely or accidentally um, through bird feeders. And if they leave food outside for their pets, um, or they can scavenge in compost piles and things like that. Wildlife also benefit a lot from the types of plants we um, we plant, so, you know, deer-eating plants. So I think it's a complete misnomer that we don't have um, these vibrant wildlife communities in the East. In terms of bringing back um, cougars or wolves in the East, I personally would love it, um, but... <laughs> <laughs> from uh, I mean that's really a political question um, because <laughs> the human wildlife conflicts are definitely going to be there so my friend who um, posted the article about cougars going extinct and if we should bring them back her stance was no because she works on black bears and she sees a lot of human wildlife conflict in the east with people and black bears and she doesn't think it's worth it to bring them back. Um, and I see a lot, there's a lot budding here in North Carolina with coyotes. Uh, we have coyotes, which are new to North Carolina. They've only been here for about 30 years. And they are becoming more um, bold. So people are seeing them more. And, um, yeah, you just see across the state that, People are starting to get alarmed by them. So, um, and they don't necessarily have to do anything. Coyotes do do some things that people don't like, but um, for the most part, they keep to themselves. Um, I've, I've never seen a coyote. The only time I've seen one is in Yellowstone. Um, mm. But I have seen coyotes scat around my neighborhood. Um, but they do kill pets, you know, so that upsets people. Um, but they're not really a harm to us as humans, but there's still just a lot of fear about them being around. So 
I think it would be really hard to bring back um, cougars to this area, although I think it would be a good idea, personally. No, that would be that would be nice to see. Now, with the coyotes, I mean, they're new as in they weren't ever in the region, or they just came back 30 years ago? Right. So, um, so some of the animal diversity in the West that you're talking about is just natural diversity, that um, some animals just naturally live in the West and they don't live in the East. Um, with coyotes, they were restricted more to the Midwest and West, but they've expanded their range in all ways. So North, um, South, they're going into um, Panama now, and East and West. So they extended um, Western California, and um, they finally made their way to North Carolina and the East. So yeah, they were restricted to the Midwest, um, were more of a prairie species, but um, some human development has actually helped facilitate their expansion out east. Um, so that combined with the lack of apex predators like wolves and cougars, and they're just really good at adapting to human landscapes, and they have um, flourished in the east. So here in North Carolina, um, they're everywhere, um, but we don't really know more of like what – microhabitats they're using. So, so they're generalists. And we're not talking about like, you know, are they using swamps versus um, more arid landscapes? I mean, like, um, where are they exactly living on the landscape? So some of our research shows that they're not really going in people's yards yet, but they are living in the greenway system that we have here. Um, so trails and things like that. And the other thing sure. just about bringing back cougars um, is you have to think about um, how animals impact other animals, and a lot of people don't think about that. So um, just one of the benefits that cougars or wolves bringing them back to the area might have is impacting our deer population because deer aren't really um, scared of people, and um, especially in suburban areas, um, they're not, they can become really habituated to people. And, in some areas, they've increased a lot and causing problems. In other areas, they've declined. But for areas where they've increased, um, one way possibly to um, to deal with deer would be to have an apex predator back. So I actually did a paper, um, or I did a study where we looked at deer in um, parks across the mid-Atlantic region of the U.S., and we measured how vigilant they were. Um, so you can imagine if um, – it's just like human vigilance. If you were walking in Kenya on foot with lions around you, you would be a lot more alert and scanning the environment and have your head up um, as opposed to walking, you know, in my backyard here in North Carolina. And this seems true for animals. If you're in a high predator area, they're going to have their head up more and scan the environment. Um, otherwise, if they have low predators, they'd be just as happy to, to forage a lot and keep their head down. Um, so what we found with deer is their, their vigilance levels are not really changing with hunting or um, recreational hiking. Um, so, and they're becoming habituated to humans. So actually their vigilance was lower where there are more humans. And coyotes are not affecting deer behavior either. They, they didn't increase their vigilance with more coyotes. 
So although coyotes um, do prey upon deer, it's mostly it's probably mostly the fawns, and um, you know the fawns are bedded down anyway. They're not going to be vigilant at all. So just some interesting factors to consider if we were to bring back those big predators. Sure, no, that's a lot to uh, lot to consider for sure. Well, we uh, we are running up against the, the clock, unfortunately. Um, but thanks so much for coming on the show. It was uh, interesting to talk about this. Yeah, no problem. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks a lot. Okay, so that was uh, Stephanie Shuttler. Um, be sure to look her up if you're interested in more about elephants or wildlife in general, and check out her blog as well. Uh, once again, this has been the AJ Bruno Show. We'll be back soon with an all-new installment. Where we'll be discussing another interesting subject with uh, another great guest. So until next time, I'm signing off for now. Thanks.